What can the first transatlantic cable tell us about inequality in the contemporary world? The first messages sent via the Valencia to Newfoundland telegraph cable in 1858 are often celebrated as marking a moment when the world changed, when time and space were zapped and the planet made small and interconnected. But does that kind of tech mythology also zap important characters, ignoring the real lives of people on both sides of the Atlantic? Seamus Heaney, Professor of Irish writing at TCD, Chris Morash will be helping explore the meanings of the cable as part of an event in TCD this week, ahead of which he spoke to Culturefile about the wire that changed the world, a piece of which he had close to hand. It's copper copper wire, um, bundles of copper wire with uh, then a kind of a protective uh, sort of steel covering over the top of it. I, mean, I actually have a chunk of, of the cable here on my desk. Um, <laughs> there, were, there were bits of it retrieved from Valencia Bay and... Uh, enterprising people have sold them um, but at the time actually there were bits of the cable became almost like sacred relics I mean Tiffany's in New York made walking sticks in which you had bits of cable in them piece of the true cross kind of piece of the true <laughs> cross yeah you had letter openers with handles made from the cable What we're marking here is is the laying of the first transatlantic telegraph cable, uh, which occurred in August of 1858. Basically, two ships, the Agamemnon and the Niagara, started from the center of the Atlantic Ocean and sailed opposite sides, one to Valencia Bay in, in Kerry, the other to Hearts Content in Newfoundland. And when that cable was connected, within a few days, it was possible for the first time ever to send a message across the Atlantic almost instantaneously. So these are Morse code messages. The very first messages after the technicians had had their, their, their ta- chance to, to play with it uh, were from Queen Victoria to President Buchanan of the United States and then from President Buchanan back. So they were fairly ceremonial messages. The popular sense of this was that suddenly everybody could communicate across the Atlantic Ocean. And in fact, that wasn't the case. Messages were, were expensive. They were, they were unreliable. I mean, that first 1858 cable really only lasted about 30 days. The signals were so weak that the technicians kept having to jack up the voltage. And eventually they just burnt the cable out. So, you know, it's, it, it, it was a bit like, you know, what we've all experienced with Zoom over the past 18 months where everything's going fine and then suddenly, you know, everything would freeze. So, you know, you, you crank it up again. <laughs> but one of the, the ideas that they had was that it was going to destroy time and space or annihilate it altogether, which I guess is kind of marketing speak in a way, as well as a sort of philosophical thing. It's both. I mean, one of the great promoters of this, I mean, Cyrus W. Field, the man who was primarily the kind of entrepreneur behind this, uh, was a master of combining kind of big philosophical and theological ideas um, with marketing. You know, so the idea that, you know, when they laid the cable, there was a there was a kind of plateau across the Atlantic that took the cable very nicely. Um, he, he, he interpreted this that God had actually shaped the bottom of the Atlantic precisely so a cable could be laid across it. And there were sermons preached um, all up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States, particularly. There were sermons preached when the cable came ashore, praising God for having made this possible. And, and not in a general way, but a very specific way, that this was part of God's plan to unite humanity. But the idea that time and space is annihilated, 
is a very interesting one because we take this for granted that um, you know that, that we can be you know here in Ireland and talking to somebody on the other side of the world and it doesn't even seem strange to us but you think of what it must have been like the first time that it was possible to communicate between London and New York it is as if the Atlantic had just disappeared um, so there was there was a euphoric sense about this it had a huge effect on on, 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 on the flow of news. Um, the use was primarily commercial. Ordinary individuals couldn't afford to send cables. Uh, but it increased the amount of news um, exponentially. And, and in places, it kind of leveled out the planet in some ways in terms of news. Um, the, the proprietors of the main newspaper in St. John's, Newfoundland, um, which subsequently was known as the Telegraph, um, basically said, look, we're going to have the same news now that they have in London because we've got the cable. Um, and, and this was you know, published in the newspaper on the day the cable came ashore. Henceforth, our readers can expect much more in the way of news. Um, and you see that actually in newspapers. Like you see things like the Irish Times in the 1860s, you know, giving traffic reports for Calcutta just because <laughs> they can. And and you point out that uh, there was also a sort of division uh, happening around the same time where there were all these speculators using this kind of highfalutin language about annihilating time and space. But there was reality around the cable at both ends of the cable in particular. Yeah, this is the thing that really fascinates me about the Valencia site. And I didn't get it until I went to Valencia because I had written about the Telegraph before that. And when I went to Valencia and you stand at where the cable house, the cable, the Telegraph station is there in Valencia Island, you're directly across from where the largest workhouse in Munster had been during the famine in Cajar Savine. And it had been actually roofed with slate from Valencia Island, the same slate that was on the Telegraph house and you realize this is 1858 there are still people in that workhouse um there, there were still something like you know a few years earlier there were over 200,000 people in workhouses in 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 Munster alone and and then on the other end of the cable in heart's content uh accounts of Newfoundland from the 1850s and 1860s give accounts of you know people literally starving uh when the fishery was poor and, and retreating into the wilderness and living in what were called tilts, which was a kind of hut made out of bits of tree, um, you know, tree and moss. So on one hand, you had people literally living in mud huts in places around, in, in, in that area around in Kerry, in, in, in that western part of Kerry. And then on the other end, you had people living in these kind of wooden huts in the woods. So you had the absolute epitome of modernity in the cable. And at either end of the cable, you had people living in conditions that were more or less medieval. And it sort of foreshadows that uh, that same dynamic in our own world when we, we talk about a sort of globalized instantaneous communication and somehow divorce people and their bodies from that. For me, that's why the cable is in the cable, the sites of the cable are so important, because they force a kind of ethical remembrance that when we're celebrating the triumphs of technology and the triumphs of modernity, we always have to remember that the, the disasters of history accompany them, are beside them, and occupy the same spaces. And that's true of our world as much as it was true of the world of the 1850s and 1860s.
Chris Morash there, and he'll be among the speakers on Thursday evening's TCD Long Room Hub event, The Wire That Changed the World, which begins online at 7pm. Search for The Wire That Changed the World.